This morning's scripture reading is in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. There should be a blue pew Bible in front of you as well. If you can turn to Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 through 15. Please rise to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of Holy Scripture. And pray now for the Holy Spirit to come to accompany the preaching of your word that we might be transformed by it, that our hearts may be conformed to the truth and to the beauty and the goodness that's found in this passage. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, over the last few months, we have been walking through the middle chapters of Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham, and I hope it has been helpful for you. I hope you have found it quite relevant and applicable, because in many ways, if you think about it, Abraham does serve as a forerunner of the faith. He does set up a pattern for us that you find um, uh, set for believers throughout the rest of Scripture and on to today. It's a pattern for all of us to follow. And so perhaps you've already seen a reflection of yourself and, uh, in his life and in his faith journey uh, through all the highs and lows of his story. Hopefully you've been making a connection as you get to know more about Abraham. But of course, I hope you come away learning not just more about this patriarch of the faith, but really, I hope you come away learning more about his God. 
the God who called him, the God who covenanted with him. Because you know, so far in these chapters, we've had the occasion to encounter God a few times. He has appeared to Abraham on a number of occasions. Usually, he appears as a voice, sometimes in a vision, one time as a smoking fire pot. Now, last week, when we looked at Genesis 17, that's where God finally revealed to Abraham one of his names. Remember, in that chapter, he had promised to Abraham that he and his wife, Sarah, will have a son in spite of their advanced age. And to assure him of this promise, God revealed himself as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. That's who's backing this promise to you, Abraham. So I think what we can say so far in all of these encounters with God, so far Abraham has encountered a sovereign God, a mighty God, a transcendent God, an infinite, omnipotent God. You know, that smoking fire pot and flaming torch that he saw in Genesis 15, that doesn't really convey warmth. That doesn't really convey approachability. No, that communicates rather God's holiness, his set-apartness, his, his otherness. A smoking fire pot really suggests someone who, quote, alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That, my friends, is the vibe you get so far in all these encounters between God and Abraham. But that's what makes our passage unique. That's what makes chapter 18 stand apart because this here is the first instance in Scripture of what we call an anthropomorphic theophany. That's a word for you. Essentially, that's just where God visibly manifests himself in the form of a man. He appears to mankind as a man. So if you want to convey warmth, you want to convey approachability, if God wants to communicate with you his imminence, his nearness, well then showing up at your house in the appearance of a man is a pretty strong signal of how close and approachable God wants to be. I mean, you really can't top that. Unless, of course, God were to somehow actually become a man. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What's also different about this divine visitation is that this time, in chapter 18, this time, it's actually more directed towards Sarah. It might appear that Abraham is the primary target, but by the end of our passage, we discover it's actually Sarah that God wants to visit with. God wants to grow her faith. He wants to turn her cynical laughter into cheerful laughter. He knows what she's dealing with, the bitterness, the cynicism, and he wants to transform her. And friends, I'm not surprised if, if, if many of you right now in this room, if you feel the same incredulity as Sarah does when you consider the promises of God. Because like Sarah, you've faced plenty of disappointment in life. You've gone through enough hardship. You've experienced enough loss that now many of God's promises that you come across in Scripture just seem too good to be true. They seem too incredible for you to actually believe. God works all things for good. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Really? Really, God? I mean, those are pretty, pretty big promises. You could even say they're pretty preposterous. Perhaps that's where you're coming from. Perhaps you'd laugh, scoff even at those who easily, easily believe those scripture verses, who easily believe those promises, who are so quick to turn things over to God and just to trust in him to pull through. You laugh. You laugh at them because they're just too wide-eyed. They're too naive. They don't understand how the world really works. Well, I hope our look at this passage will particularly speak to you, that it will encourage you, that it will begin to transform any cynicism that you might carry and turn it into a childlike God-honoring faith. That's my hope and prayer as we go into this text. Now, this morning we have a fairly simple outline. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. Very simple outline. We're just going to see three observations. We're going to observe Abraham and Sarah, first, being approached by God, second, being challenged by God, and third, being transformed by God. That's where we're going. Let's begin in verse 1, and let's observe how Abraham and Sarah are approached by God. Let's start reading in verse 1 again. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, if you recall with me, back when we were looking at Genesis 13, at the end of Genesis 13, we're told that Abraham, Abraham had settled uh, at the Oaks of Mamre, which is uh, located over at the town of Hebron. And that was, of course, after he and his nephew had parted ways, and Lot, his nephew, chose what appeared at the time to be the more fruitful land in the Jordan Valley. Uh, and he settled among all the cities of the valley, particularly in the city of Sodom. Abraham, on the other hand, he settled in the land of Canaan. And the Lord told him, this is the land I'm promising you. This is the promised land. It's going to be for you and your offspring as an internal inheritance. So five chapters later, we're here in chapter 18, and Abraham is still in the same place. He's at the Oaks of Mamre. And one day, he is approached by three visitors. Now, later we find out that it is, it is very apparent that these three visitors are none other than a visible manifestation of Yahweh, the Lord God, and two of his angels. But at this point, in verse 2, I'd argue that Abraham didn't recognize their true identity. I don't think he knew who they were. Now, I know when you read about his hospitality that he shows, I know it's easy to assume that he knows who he's entertaining because we, we read here that he, he rushes to greet them. Then he bows down before them and he addresses one of them with a very exalted respect, title of respect. And then he provides water for their feet and then he offers a morsel of bread and that morsel of bread suddenly turns into this lavish feast. He tells Sarah, take three seas of fine flour, bake them into cakes. And you need to understand that three seas that amounts to over five gallons of flour. That is far more bread than you need to feed three travelers. And then he takes what we're told is a tender and good calf from his herd, and he has it prepared as a meal. And he serves curds and milk, which would have been considered generous side dishes to go along with this very generous 
choice calf. So this turns out to be a banquet he's throwing for these visitors. Not a light snack that you might imagine just handing to some travelers on their way through. So I can see why someone might assume that Abraham must have known that he is serving and hosting the Lord and his angels. But we make that assumption probably because we don't share the same assumptions with ancient Near Eastern culture. You see, Abraham's hospitality, it might seem over the top to us, but his gestures were fairly normal expressions of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. This is how you treated guests in those days and in that culture. I mean, it's kind of a lot like when I visit my, my, my parents' house or my, my in-laws. I have to remember that, that my first-generation immigrant mother or first-generation immigrant mother-in-law, if she was to ask me if I'm hungry, I need to be very specific in how I respond to that. Because if I just simply say yes, I might be thinking I'm going to be receiving a simple snack, maybe some cut fruit, and she's off in the kitchen preparing a full-on meal for me. And so I, I realized, wow, you know, that's, that's a cultural difference. That's part of ancient, uh, Asian immigrant culture. We want to feed you? You're hungry? I'm going to prepare all this food for you. So that's, I think, in a similar way what's going on here. We have to understand that Abraham lived in a culture where it was expected to provide this kind of generous hospitality for any guest that shows up in your home. So from his actions alone, we can't assume that he actually knew that his guests were divine. He would have done the same thing for anyone that came by. So if his gestures were fairly normal, then why are we talking about it? And why is there so much attention given to it here in the text? Well, one reason why is because it's preparing us to encounter the inhospitality of the men of Sodom that's going to be uh, revealed to us in the next chapter. And we'll look at that next week. So there is a literary purpose preparing us for what we're going to encounter in the next chapter. But another reason for his why his hospitality is highlighted, especially in not knowing who he's actually serving, is that it demonstrates that Abraham truly is a man of faith. He is a genuine man of faith. Because he didn't prepare a feast because he knew it was God and he was trying to impress him. He wasn't trying to curry God's favor by offering him all this food. And, and, And that's why this is such an important point to make, that he didn't know It was God he was serving. Because Abraham's true character is more clearly on display because he was ignorant of the true identity of his guests. It's like how, you know, in a workplace, you don't really know the true quality of the employees if the boss is always hanging around. When the boss is visibly present, everyone's on their A game. Everyone's on good behavior. And that's why I, I loved watching that show. I don't know if it's still on anymore, but I loved watching that show, Undercover Boss. Have you ever watched that show? It's a show that basically has uh, these random companies, um, and what they do is they, they show up to the workplace, and they, they take the boss, and they disguise the boss in like high-quality, you know, Hollywood-quality uh, disguise and makeup and everything. And so the boss under the guise of a new employee, would be introduced into the workplace. And there, the boss finally has a chance 
to see everyone's true colors. And how are they treating the new guy in the workspace, right? This is where you, he finally or she finally gets to see everyone's true work ethic. And it's hugely revealing. It's a, it's a great show. If you, if you can find episodes of it, I think you'll enjoy it. Well, in the same way, Abraham's true character is revealed here in our passage. And in this case, it's quite encouraging. Remember, in Genesis 15, we are told that's where he was saved by faith. That's where he was justified by God. That's where his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was righteous. He was right in God's eyes since Genesis 15. And ever since then, through all the highs and lows of his story, through all the trials and tribulations that he faced, he has been progressively sanctified, and he is being more and more conformed into that righteousness. That's what's happening here in Abraham's life. And now it's revealed that he truly is a man of faith. He truly is right before God. It's, 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 it's important for us to see this about Abraham. And when you think about it, you know, just this way that God reveals this to us about Abraham, it does make you wonder, does this ever happen today? Like, has God ever showed up in disguise in our lives individually? or maybe among us here at church? Has he ever showed up and approached us undercover as a stranger? How did we do? How did we respond? What was revealed in our character, either individually or corporately as the church? I mean, it really makes real that verse that you find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, that says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The writer of Hebrews is probably thinking about this episode in Genesis. Now, when we get to verse 10, this is where I think Abraham finally realizes who he's hosting, that this is the Lord, because that's where God reveals his knowledge of a promised child. Look at verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And that's very similar language to what he said to Abraham back in chapter 17. So that's information that Abraham knows, knows that no common traveler has that information. No common traveler would know what, what God told me a chapter ago. So this is clearly the Lord beginning to reveal his identity. And, and notice how the Lord wanted to make sure that Sarah was in earshot when he revealed himself and he, he renewed this promise to grant them a son. Look at verse 9 and how he asked Abraham, where, where is Sarah your wife? Because he wanted to make sure that she was present to hear what he was about to say. And we're told that she was there. Look at the end of verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, I think you can make an argument that God was there for Sarah more than he was for Abraham. Because remember, we said that God's already appeared to Abraham, and, and he's had encounters with, with God plenty of times already. In chapter 17, last week, we saw he had a similar conversation. and God made a similar promise about he and his wife, Sarah, having a son. So he's already heard this promise before. So this time, this one is for Sarah. Because it really affirms the basic principle that it's not good enough to merely know God through somebody else's experience. You see, up to this point, you could say 
that Sarah believed in God because Abraham had shared with her God's word and God's promises, but she didn't really believe God. Like she knew about God, but she didn't really know God. What she needed was her own experience of God. Because it's not enough to merely know God through somebody else's experience. And I think that's the problem that you find in the church today. We've got a lot of people suffering from the effects of second-hand faith. And maybe, maybe that describes you. It is certainly people around you with genuine faith. Certainly people around you with genuine first-hand faith, experiencing a real relationship with God, but have you experienced him for yourself? You've had other people tell you about God's word. You've had other people preach to you God's promises, but have you read the word yourself? Have you studied his promises yourself? Don't be content with merely inhaling someone else's secondhand faith. It's great that your parents have faith. It's great that your friends have faith. It's great that your spouse has faith. Faith is lingering in the air all around you, but no one becomes a Christian by inhaling secondhand faith. Just as Sarah needed a genuine firsthand encounter with the Lord, that's the same for all of us. All of us need to experience him for ourselves. We can't rely on someone else knowing God for us. We can't rely on someone else trusting God on our behalf. We need to know the Lord ourselves. We need to trust in him ourselves. And that's why God approached Sarah. That's why it was so important that he came to her. But you know, with any genuine relationship with the Lord, what it begins with, it always begins with the Lord challenging you. He, he doesn't show up to start a relationship with you immediately affirming all of your thinking, all of your opinions, all of your actions. No, when the Lord shows up in your life to have a relationship, he shows up and you are immediately challenged. Something needs to give. Something needs to change. And so let's, let's consider now what needs to change here for Sarah. Let's consider our second observation and to see how she was challenged by God. Listen with me to verses 11 to 12. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So when Sarah hears God's promise to open up her womb and to finally give her a son, her immediate reaction was to laugh to herself. And that's how Abraham reacted in the same way back in chapter 17. And the fact that laughter was the instinctive response to, to, for both of them suggests to us that what the Lord was about to do to fulfill his promise was too hard even for his own people to imagine. I mean, out of all the people in the world, you would think that it would be believers it would be the people of God who ha would have a fairly large imagination, believing that God can accomplish some pretty amazing things. But apparently, even the people of God have limits to their imagination, and this was going beyond it. They couldn't believe this to be true, and they laughed. Sarah looked, Sarah looked at herself. Sarah looked at her husband. And she couldn't, she couldn't see a realistic way how the two of them were going to have a child, especially 
at this advanced age. In her eyes, she was worn out. That's how she describes herself. Look at her words, verse 12. She was worn out. Worn out in the sense of her own body being physically unable to have children. Not only, as we we know, she struggled with infertility all the years of their marriage. Now she is 90 years old. She is advanced in years. She is post-menopausal. That's what verse 11 means when it says that the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. She's gone through menopause. There's no way she's having a baby. So physically... Physiologically, she couldn't bear children. Her body was worn out. But you know, in another sense, you could say that Sarah was worn out emotionally. She was emotionally spent from all those empty years of hoping and waiting for a child. And I, I, I know just a little fraction of, of what that feels like. I mean, I, I did share last week how how my wife and I struggled with infertility for years. And I know, because many of you have been vulnerable to share, that that's been your story as well, that you've had to go through years of of infertility. And so, so you know what it's like to pray with tears, to pray for years and nothing to happen. And so you probably feel, and you probably know what it feels like to feel abandoned by God, or you, you feel like you're cursed by God. And I hope you realize you're not alone in that because we see it right here. I'm sure that's how Sarah felt. Years of waiting and hoping and nothing. And, and, and even more so for her, in her culture, in her context, it was even, you could argue, even more painful because you have to consider that from an Old Testament perspective, barrenness didn't just feel like a curse. It was said to be a curse in the law. The inability to have children was interpreted as a sign of judgment. And so I, you know, I, I think in our modern day society where, where, where many couples intentionally choose not to have children, I think we're in a society, we're in a culture today where we fail to understand just how devastating it was in the Old Testament to be childless. Why, why the worst predicament for female characters in the Bible was barrenness. I don't think we really appreciate the gravity of this issue. We're so used to how it works in the New Testament. We're so used to how it works under the new covenant where the people of God grows by means of regeneration. How do you grow the people of God? Through regeneration, through through being born again of the Spirit of God. That's how the people of God grow under the new covenant. But it was different In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of God grew primarily by means of reproduction, by Jewish couples being fruitful and multiplying their family. As an Israelite, that was your covenantal duty. Get married, have lots of children, perpetuate the line of Abraham. And that's why, that's why having children mattered so much. That's why it's Really, if you notice, it's the central plot line in so many of the Old Testament stories. It's about having a kid. Because that's how you ensured the propagation and the preservation of God's covenant people. For an Old Testament Israelite woman, that is how you would personally contribute to the mission of God. And so to fail to produce offspring was to fail God and to fail God's covenant people. So in Sarah's eyes, you can understand just how much of a failure she felt like she was. 
And by now, after all these years, she is just worn out in every sense of the word. So her laugh in verse 12 is is really more of a cynical laugh. It's not a cheerful one. It's a laughter of incredulity. Really? Really, God? Are you really going to do that? Now, remember, Sarah laughed to herself. She she didn't really, this big, you know, chuckle out loud. She didn't intend anyone to hear this. And so she's surprised when the Lord calls her out in verse 13. He he challenges her in her disbelief. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And we're told that because she was shocked by that and because she was afraid, she instinctively denied it. She lied. But, uh, so look, look at verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, this is the Lord, said, no, but you did laugh. Now, the question for us is, why was her laugh so bitter? Well, why did it become a, a cynical laugh? And the Lord actually tells us why in verse 14. He tells us what happened, why she has now this cynical laugh, and he tells us in the form of a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for God? And apparently in Sarah's eyes, there was something too hard for the Lord. Now, you know, that word for hard can also be translated as wonderful. Maybe for, for you in, your, in the footnotes of your English translation, you see there that it could also be translated as, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I know some English translations do render verse 14 that way, and I, I kind of wish more did because I think that translation really gets to the root of the issue for Sarah. You see, Sarah had lost her wonder. She lost her sense of wonder meaning that she didn't see the world with eyes of wonder anymore. Her experience of God lacked any wonder. She no longer expected wondrous things to happen in her life. She was practical to a fault. Well, friends, could the same thing be said of you? Have you lost your sense of wonder at God? Have you lost your sense of wonder in your walk with him? Do you you still expect to wonder at God's amazing work in your life? Or, or do you never step foot forward in response to God's call until after you've mitigated all the risks? Are you only willing to step out in faith and to follow him, to take a big risk for God because you're able to first secure for yourself a safety net? Think about it this way. Would anyone look at your life Look at your priorities. Look at the way that you invest your time and your money. Look at the way that you raise your kids. Look at the way that you lead your family. And would they look at you and wonder? Would they wonder at the way that you are leading your life in utter reliance on a God of wonder? Or is your life fairly comprehensible to the world? Are your life choices easily explainable by the unbelieving world? Or do people scratch their heads in wonder when they get to meet you, they get to know you, and they see how you live your life? 
Look, friends, if you want your own firsthand experience of God, then just like Sarah, you should expect your lack of wonder to be confronted by God. You should expect your faith to be stretched, your faith to be challenged by God. Maybe your view of God has grown too small. Maybe in your eyes there are some things too hard for him, too wondrous, even for the Lord. If that describes you, if, if, if that's kind of where you're at right now, then in addition to being challenged by God, what you really need ultimately is to be transformed by him and by his wondrous grace. And that's what Sarah experiences next. So this leads to our, our final observation. Let's, let's see how Sarah was transformed by God. Now, now we saw uh, how he called out her laughter in verse 15. And I know at first glance it might seem harsh, but if you look more closely, you'll notice God didn't lash out in anger. I mean, she, she lied to him, but he didn't, he didn't lash out in anger. He wasn't wrathful. He simply responded with truth. God is a truth-speaking God, and he will respond with truth. It says here, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You laughed. The Lord certainly responds with truth. But I hope you see he also responds with grace, grace and truth. Remember how, remember how in the last chapter, the Lord already told us how they should name their promised son. He already revealed the name that they should use. He says, call this boy Isaac. And we're told there in Hebrew that the name Isaac means he laughs. So as readers, when we get to this verse, we already know that their son is named after their laughter. So God's words here in verse 15 can be read as really a gracious reminder that, Sarah, you laughed. And more laughter is coming for you. And in the future, it will be a different kind of laughing. Because when we arrive a few chapters later in Genesis 21, it begins by telling us that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And nine months later, Sarah has her son in her arms, and she laughs again. And this time, listen to Genesis 21, verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears, who hears about this son, will laugh over me. And this time, the laughter, of course, is cheerful. It's no longer a cynical laugh. It's no longer a scoffing kind of laugh. It's really a side-splitting kind of laugh. Everyone is laughing with her at the wondrous works of the Lord in her life. In chapter 21, Sarah is laughing, the laughter of grace. This is the laughter of grace because here El Shaddai finally pulled through. His almighty power overcame the physiological impossibility of a postmenopausal 90-year woman having a baby. And now Sarah was filled with laughter and her relationship with God was now filled with wonder. And of course, as we contemplate her story, all of us should be asking ourselves, how can this happen to us? How can we experience the same transformation that she went through? How can we regain our sense of wonder? How can we be filled with the laughter of grace? Well, as, as, as hopeful and as encouraging as Sarah's story turns out to be, friends, in the end, 
This story is not the story that's going to penetrate your heart and transform you and to transform your cynicism into joyful laughter. This is not going to do it. Sarah's story doesn't have the power to fill you with wonder and to fill you with faith, but her story points to the story that does. And I think you know what story I'm talking about. When you get to Luke chapter 1, you come across a very familiar scene. There's another visitation by angels. There's another promise of a son. And there's another impossibility, that promise ever coming true. And this time, it was a much harder thing for the Lord to do. Much more wondrous. If it was physically and physiologically impossible for a postmenopausal Sarah to have a baby with her husband, then what about having a baby without a husband? At least Abraham and Sarah can try to conceive even in their advanced age. But Mary was a virgin. Well, just as in Sarah's story, in Mary's story, there's an assurance of God's almighty power to overcome impossible odds. It says in Luke 1, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, of El Shaddai, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for Nothing will be impossible with God. And in this story, just like in Sarah's, the response of the mother-to-be is recorded for us. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, we read these words coming from young Mary. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, why do you think Luke, in writing his gospel, drew so many parallels between the angelic visitation to Sarah and the angelic visitation to Mary. What do you think he's trying to do here? I think it's because he's trying to communicate the identity of Mary's son. In other words, he's trying to tell us that Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the ultimate son of promise. And because of Jesus, there is now a power from the Most High, from God Almighty, that can overcome the impossible in our lives. Nothing is impossible with God. And I'm not talking about infertility. I'm not talking about having a baby in your 90s, because in the end, we realize that's not technically impossible. It happened for Abraham and Sarah. But friends, I'll tell you what's impossible. I'll tell you what's impossible. It's written for us. It's recorded for us in Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's impossible. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we sacrifice, no matter how much blood, sweat, and tears, we cannot atone for our own sins. We can't get right with God through anything that we do. It's impossible. But the son of Mary can. He lived in a heavenly world of laughter, but for our sake, he entered a broken world of sorrow. 
And he took on our sins upon his shoulders. He climbed up to the cross of Calvary, and there he shed his blood, the blood that makes it possible to take away our sins. This was the mission of the true and better Isaac. He left the heavenly world of laughter. He walked the path of sadness and suffering so that our sin and our sorrow can be transformed into joy and laughter so that we can laugh the laughter of grace. Friends, if you're having a hard time laughing right now, if you can't remember the last time you had a really good laugh, if your life feels rather more marked by, by sadness, by emptiness, by cynicism, then it's time for you to look to the Son of Mary. Look to Jesus. The kind of life transformation that captures the wonder of the world, that, that makes them think that they are seeing the impossible. This kind of life transformation is available to all who put their trust in Jesus. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And perhaps many of you already knew that. Maybe you knew I was going to go there with this text, that we were going to get to the gospel. Maybe you've, you've heard this gospel. Maybe you would say you believe in this gospel because you have heard it preached to you maybe all your life. But don't be content to merely believe this good news secondhand. Make it firsthand. Make sure that this gospel is your own, that Jesus is your own. Let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for, for this story of Sarah and how gentle you ultimately were with her, approaching her, challenging her, but ultimately so that you can change her. And I pray, Lord, that you will do the same with us and that for all of us, we will come away from here not just merely inhaling the faith of others, but embracing it for ourselves that we would trust in Jesus this very day for ourselves to be followers of Jesus in our own right. We pray all this in Jesus' name.